1: Hello and welcome to episode 290 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Sorry I'm a day late this week, but, well, life. Today we look at a series of events in London that I was unaware of until really recently. Do you have this sometimes, as, like me, someone who reads and listens to a lot of true crime, I'm always astonished when I hear of a case so awful that I don't understand how I missed all the coverage at the time. Well, that's certainly the case today. It's not as unusual as many of the stories covered on this podcast, so you may know of it. But I think it's a really important story to tell, and I wanted to share it with you today. Before we begin, a huge thanks to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That is Ellie J. Dobson, Matthew straker Bryce, Holly Bracey, Christine O'Neill, Jennifer Traybon, Mr. Len, and to Martin Hines for increasing his support. Thank you all so much. And of course, if you're at CrimeCon London this week, look forward to seeing you there. First round is on you. This podcast is sponsored by Noom. If you're looking for better, healthier weight loss that starts in the mind, you've really got to look at Noom's psychology-based approach. So instead of being unrealistic and demanding this whole new lifestyle, Noom helps you understand your mind and body and gives you the long-term results that we're all looking for, right? One aspect of this for me, it was a simple thing, such as not food chopping when hungry, as it was leading me to making, well, some very poor choices. And then I'd balance it with short-term fads. I remember a soup diet once, which really wasn't very good. And since using Noom, I have a totally different approach to food. Just because I eat an unhealthy meal during the day doesn't mean that I've blown my whole day by making further bad choices as I used to. And I also know that nothing's off limits, which gives me lots more control over my food life. And as Noom only takes up 10 minutes of the day, it's super easy for you to build into your routine, however busy you are. And this, to me, is a very good reason why 80% of Noom users finish the program and over 60% have stuck with their goals for at least a year. It's impressive, right? Lose the weight for good. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash UKTCpod. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash UKTCpod. Okay, let's set the context for today's story with our guest month in New Game. Like me, you are sophisticated and enjoy the finest things in life. I know that. And on that note, number one in the UK was Eric Pride with Call on Me featuring that video, the very essence of sophistication. Top of the US singles chart was Kiara, Kyra. Somebody beginning with C featuring Peter Pablo with Goodies. And in Australia, the album at the Summit of the Charts this week was Missy Higgins with The Sound of White. In the news this month, a bomb exploded outside the Australian Embassy in Jakarta, killing 10 people. At Oakland Hills Country Club, Europe retained the Ryder Cup, winning 18.5-9.5. It's been pretty different recently. And a Fathers for Justice campaigner dressed as Batman breached security at Buckingham Palace and another group of activists, but this sort of group I just can't understand. Pro-hunt campaigners. Yep, they're still out there. They caused Parliament to be suspended after they broke into the House of Commons. This month saw the death of football manager Brian Clough and also actress Thriffer Goody, who tragically took her own life aged just 31. Did you guess the month and year? It was September 2004. Okay, so on with today's story. Daniel Gonzalez lived at home with his mum in Woking, Surrey. By the time we joined the story, life wasn't going well for Zippy, as he was known as a child. No friends, no girl, boyfriend, and he spent most of his time either watching horror films, he loved the violence, especially with Jason, the Friday the 13th killer, and Freddy Krueger. Not my sort of thing at all. Are you a fan? For a young, fit man, it was a really dull existence, and he got himself out of the house by heading to the West End of London to go to pubs and clubs. But when here, Daniel took a lot of drugs and drank a hell of a lot. On these nights out, he could be seen very unsteady on his feet, as he went from one venue to another. And he was normally on his own. What's that expression? That there's nowhere where you can be more lonely than in a big crowd. I sometimes think that when I look at pubs and bars and you see people on their own. Daniel had an English mum and a Spanish dad. When he was six, his parents broke up and he always had issues, even as a small boy. And his behaviour was worrying enough that his parents took him to see a psychologist when he was just 10 years old. It was nothing serious, it was just strange behaviour, as he would talk and laugh to himself, and put pins on chairs, behaviour which resulted in him being expelled from school. But he was decent academically, and he recovered from this to leave school with eight GCSEs, and in addition he enjoyed success at chess, and he also enjoyed acting in local productions. Five years before we pick up the story, back in 1999, Daniel was diagnosed as being schizophrenic. Daniel was diagnosed as having mental health issues after a number of admissions to secure hospitals as his mental health declined. It was a really challenging time for Daniel and his family around him, especially when in late 2003 he told his mum he'd experienced thoughts about killing people. But medical staff judged he wasn't high risk and he was released back to the care of his mum in 2004. But unbeknown to anyone else, in 2004 he also started to have some very disturbing thoughts around the horror films he enjoyed so much. He pondered what it would be like to take on the role of Freddy Krueger for just one day, and just how would it feel to kill someone. These thoughts began to be more regular and soon became an obsession, and he fantasised about the fame and notoriety that murder would bring to his anonymous life. When his acts were all over the media, he would be a somebody, not just another kid to be ignored, he'd show them. And in September 2004, he felt the time was right to claim his first victim. He spent the weekend out of his mind on a variety of drugs at a rave in East London. It was reported he took cocaine, speed, ecstasy and ketamine and on getting home on the Monday, he was seen running naked in the street near his home. This was the last opportunity for an intervention before he began to put his murderous plans into action, but there was none. The next day, Tuesday, September the 14th, he spent the day in bed, preparing himself for what he planned to do the next day. And it was just another standard Wednesday. His mum left for work as normal, she could never have guessed that at 9am her son would leave the house for the train station at Woking where he planned to take the train south to Portsmouth. And in his rucksack were some clothes and a steak knife he had taken from the kitchen drawer with just one intention, to kill. Daniel got off the train at Hilsey after seeing from the train window the quiet area of Portsbridge Creek. If you don't know it, it's a really pretty area which separates Portsea Island from the mainland and it's really popular with locals as a place to walk, jog or take their dogs out. Two dog walkers out with their dogs that morning, it was now about 11am, were 61-year-old Peter King and his wife Janice. Seeing a young man like Daniel wouldn't have been anything out of the ordinary for the couple as they walked their dog down a narrow path in the area. Daniel knew this was the time. He had the steak knife close to his thigh and as he approached a couple, rather than the customary good morning, he lunged at Peter shouting, I'm going to kill you. Peter was lucky and he survived the attack later saying, I thought he was going to kill me. I was really scared. The knife struck my chin several times and at one point I saw it under my chin close to my throat. Peter was just incredibly brave, facing the younger and stronger man as he grappled with him in the undergrowth. For almost 30 seconds it must have felt like a lifetime as he literally fought for his life as Daniel had made it really clear he wasn't messing around, he intended to kill him. Eventually Peter managed to grab the knife and much to his relief, Daniel dropped the weapon and ran off after muttering Sorry, I'm a schizophrenic. I can't help it. As the area once more returned to the peaceful place that they knew and loved, Peter and Janice were left in deep shock, wondering what had just happened. Daniel Gonzalez was devastated that he'd failed in his attempt at murder. But today was the day it was going to start, so he got on another train and headed east along the coast from Hampshire to West Sussex and Worthing, determined to find a victim who wouldn't put up such a fuss. 73-year-old Marie Harding was walking home on a secluded footpath in the high-down area of the town, and she didn't notice Gonzalez hiding in bushes nearby. He was now dressed in a white hockey mask, similar to his hero, Jason, from the Friday the Thirteenth films. Poor Marie stood no chance as Gonzales approached her from behind, stabbed her in the back and then slit her throat. He then took the time to rifle through her purse and steal a £20 note as she lay dying alongside him from her terrible wounds. On the train back home, Gonzales was exhilarated with what had just happened. Imagine, all the passengers on the busy train What unaware of the chilling words this young man was writing in his diary. He wrote, I will be a serial killer. I mean it, I promise. I will be a serial killer. I got that old bitch proper bloodbath pouring out of her throat. Boy, McFlurry. i got to say this. It felt really, really, really good. One of the best things I've ever done in my life. After his mum returned home from work that day, she saw him in his bedroom. Just a normal Wednesday evening. Gonzalez could barely contain himself as he was so excited about the possibilities of what lay ahead. With one killing achieved, he now saw his future as an infamous serial killer stretching ahead of him. He wanted at least 10 murders to his name, and tomorrow was planning a trip to London to find his next victim but the next day was pretty lost in excess drink and drugs. He travelled to central London to King's Cross station, arriving about half four in the afternoon, wearing his distinctive blue and white Honda motorcycle jacket. He'd concluded that he'd failed to kill Peter King as his knife had been too small for the job. That wasn't going to happen again, so this time he stole two large knives from the John Lewis store in Oxford Street and then he got stuck into the drink and drugs in the West End on his own again. Before, at 4am on Friday, he took a night bus to Tottenham, North London. Strange place to go really, isn't it? Why would you go to a quiet part of North London, when you're right in the centre? He would later say that he felt the urge to kill again, and was walking around the quiet streets of Tottenham looking for a victim, until just after 5am he saw somebody. This was 46-year-old Kevin Malloy, a pub landlord, walking home alone after drinking in the Swan pub in Tottenham High Road. Kevin was down on his luck as his own pub in Tottenham, the Rosen Crown, had recently gone out of business. As you'll know if you've been in the pub game, this was devastating for Kevin, especially as his place had been a big favourite for Spurs supporters for home games and it was more than just a pub, it was a community. But that night Kevin had been at the Swan talking over old times with the landlord there, over a few drinks. And when Gonzalez spotted Kevin alone, he knew this was the one, and out of nowhere he attacked, this time using both knives. Later, Gonzalez was asked why he stabbed Kevin and he replied, His face started winding me up, I had to carve him. As I was stabbing him, he said, what are you doing? I thought, how can you ask that? It's quite obvious. I'm trying to kill you. So I said to him, I'm killing you, and I killed him. There was blood trickling out. There was lots of blood on the pavement. He was just lying there. It was an hour later that the dead body of 46-year-old Kevin Malloy was found on the pavement where he'd fallen. There were stab wounds to his face, abdomen, chest and neck. Less than two hours later at 7am, Gonzalez broke into a house not far away in Hornsey. There he stabbed and bit 59-year-old Kumis Constantinou. But again he had chosen poorly. Cumis's wife was not going to stand by and see her husband attacked and she confronted him on the stairs of the home after he'd broken in. Cumis grabbed her child's cot and used that to push Gonzales back, shouting at his wife to lock herself in the bedroom for her own safety. But she was having none of this, and instead she attacked Gonzales with her slippers as Gonzales stabbed her husband in the arm and lunged with his knife towards his heart. The attack with the slippers did the trick, and Gonzales fled, having once again failed to add to his tally of murders. But by 8am, Gonzalez struck again, this time in Highgate Hill, North London. This time he'd successfully murdered a married couple, 71-year-old Derek Robinson and his 68-year-old wife Jean. Their bodies were found by a decorator who was entering their home just as the bloodied Gonzalez was leaving. Once again, it's not just the violence, it's the sheer randomness of how he selected his victims that really chills me. He told here how he randomly pressed buzzers on flats before Derek Robinson, a retired consultant paediatrician, answered the door. He explained how he thought, ready steady go, then I just jumped up and stuck it all the way in. It was such a long knife. There was no chance for the poor guy. I stabbed him once and stabbed him again. I wanted to kill him quickly, so I stabbed him in the throat. The woman was really strong. I started feeling really sorry for her. I went through her throat, then I stabbed her loads of times in the heart because I wanted her to die quickly. When he was asked how he'd felt after the killing, Gonzales said, I felt clean orgasmic. I'd washed all the rubbish out of my life. I felt better. It's something I live for it's a really good buzz killing. But this is where the killing spree ended. Daniel Gonzalez was arrested later that day at Tottenham Court Road tube station. It was around lunchtime when he bought a travel card, but his mistake was that rather than using a machine, he paid at a window with a bloody £20 note, which immediately aroused interest. As he headed through the turnstiles to get his train, it was noticed that his appearance, along with other injuries, matched a description given by the decorator as he left the home of Derek and Jean Robinson. Minutes later, two police officers arrested him on the platform as he tried to make his way back into central London, and he made no fuss and offered no resistance. All the terrible energy he'd used for violence in the last few days was gone and he was taken to Holborn Police Station for questioning. After his arrest, At left luggage some clothes of his were found along with a note which read, I will be a serial killer. I'm going to make sure I get to London and I will kill as many old bill as I can, as best I can. But when he had the opportunity to attack the two policemen who arrested him, He did nothing. Just another of the confusing aspects of this story, I think. The interviews at the police station, like all things with Gonzalez, were not standard. He admitted what he had done. Detectives had evidence in the shape of train tickets and knives still covered in the blood of his victims. There were times he bragged about what he had done and he went into detail about the pleasure they brought him. He spoke about his wish for infamy by becoming a serial killer and it was clear what his inspiration was. He told them openly he was inspired by horror movies saying I wish life was just fantasy because I thought about doing it. I wondered what it would be like to be Freddy Krueger for the day. But at other times he could be tearful and almost revert to childhood as he ate jelly babies and said how he was just a little boy who didn't feel very well. There was no doubt he was responsible for the crimes he committed. But was this just due to a severe mental illness? He certainly spoke about voices in his head who told him you, you must commit violent acts. He said he'd been instructed by cool voices, which he'd named Katrina, Misha, Melinda and Jenny Bean. Talking about the moment before he killed Kevin Malloy, he said, I had to do it because I wouldn't be able to think properly otherwise. At that time, the voices in my head were just really bad. Awaiting trial, Gonzales was moved to Broadmoor Top Security Hospital. When there, Gonzalez was certainly seen as one of the most dangerous men held in that institution. He tried on one occasion to bite himself to death. Just think about that for a moment. Dr. Edward Petch, a consultant there, said I've never seen anyone bite himself with that ferocity. A number of staff described it as a clear attempt to die. Given his history, he was genuinely trying to kill himself. He felt his was a job not complete. But this wasn't the first time he displayed violence at Broadmoor. Petch described when he first arrived in October 2004 for assessment, saying He was accompanied by an unusually large number of prison officers. I've never seen quite as many. All were in riot gear, which was unusual. That proved to be the case straight away. Our admissions ward is highly secure, and we are used to taking high-risk offenders, but I've never seen anything like this. The degree of disturbance was without parallel in my experience. It's not rocket science to say that he is at risk of extreme, unprovoked and unpremeditated violence without warning. He would lunge, attack and punch and sometimes do himself harm. And Dr. Petch told of a time when he'd been taking a bath and tried to bite himself. As he was being cleaned up, he punched a member of staff in the face. And Dr. Petch told how none of us had seen anything of this nature. We felt we could not cope. And so Gonzalez was referred to the specialist care unit, the most secure facility in the country. That ward is designed to deal with such levels of violence. But within the week he was there, he was very agitated. He told staff he didn't want to be there, he wanted to die. And on the second occasion, he put himself on the arm where the bones and artery are very superficial. He stated he heard voices. And two weeks later, he tried again to bite his arm, saying he was feeling violent. To Dr. Petch, it was clear that Daniel Gonzalez was schizophrenic and he would give evidence to that effect at Gonzalez's trial in February 2006. When the jury faced a simple question. Had he committed his crimes as he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and needed proper medical attention? González was guilty of the murders, but was it diminished responsibility the case put forward by his defence? Or was this not a factor in the terrible violence he'd used in that week in September 2004? Was severe mental illness purely a ploy to avoid a long prison sentence, as claimed by the prosecution? The lead QC for the prosecution said, González has claimed he was acting under the control and command of voices. We do not accept the veracity of those claims. González has in the past accepted that he has deliberately fabricated symptoms of mental illness to avoid being sent to prison. And the jury concluded that the crimes of González were not manslaughter, but they were murder. For these crimes, he was given six life sentences. We should just pause and at least acknowledge that there have been so many opportunities to stop the killing of four innocent people. I do appreciate it. it's so difficult for all the authorities to judge who is capable of carrying out the sort of crimes that Gonzalez committed. But just the year before the murders back in 2003, he wrote a letter to his own GP which read I really do need help now. I've tried to cope on my own like a normal human being, but I've not managed to succeed. I really need to receive treatment under the care of the doctors before my mental state gets worse. Please, please help me. This is very urgent. I'm in a desperate situation. And his mum, Leslie, had previously written a letter to her MP, asking why it was proving so difficult to get help. So frustrated with the situation, she asked, does my son have to commit murder to get help? But to be fair to the authorities, Gonzalez missed lots of appointments that were made for him with psychiatrists and others. And then in August 2007, Daniel Gonzalez was found dead in a pool of blood at Broadmoor after slashing his wrist for a broken CD case. He was 27 years old when he died. At the inquest, the psychiatrist told how the crimes and the sentence he received for them caused Gonzales a paranoid schizophrenic with a history of self-harm, great anxiety, which is why he took his own life. So what do you make of what we've heard today? The reaction to the death of Gonzales was mixed. Many, of course, were appalled by his crimes, as we all are, and the innocent lives lost, and thought, good riddance, no loss. But others had sympathy for him due to their belief that he'd been let down. For example, the chief exec of the mental health charity SANE commented, The death of Daniel Gonzalez in Broadmoor Hospital is a sad outcome in a series of preventable tragedies. Daniel Gonzalez and his family were let down by multiple failures in the mental health services and by those supervising his care in the community. I wonder what you think. I can see both sides, but as always, my sympathies lie with all the families of those affected by these purely random attacks. For us as true crime fans, we know that most attacks are carried out by those people known to the victim And it's the truly random attacks that we've heard about today that I think are the most terrifying. Our hearts go out to the friends and families of those who were affected by the terrible crimes of Daniel Gonzalez. On this podcast, we often talk of the wide ripple effect of murder. It's an effect that spreads wide and deep and influences generations of families. And we must also not forget Gonzales' mum, Leslie, who suffered so much through the actions of her son, who she tried so hard to help. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please just head to the Facebook group. With over 80,000 members, it is the polar opposite of the Kings of Leon. It's never dull. And to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash crime, where a variety of delights, I use the term loosely, awaits you. Once again, if you're at CrimeCon London at the weekend, please, please, please come over and say hi. It'd be great to see you. Otherwise, please do take it easy. And until we speak again next week, most of all, despite all the others, stay classy. I'll let you know next week just how classy I managed to stay at CrimeCon. Cheerio for now.
0: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement.